So King Louis XIV was France's monarch from 1643 all the way up until his death in 1715. He reigned over 72 years, which makes him the longest reigning monarch in European history. Now, during his rule, France became, right, it became a dominant force throughout all of Europe. Right, through war and conquest, he enlarged France's borders. He grew her coffers. And now he will later spend that in Versailles, as we'll see in just a moment, because he transferred, uh, transformed rather this little hunting lodge uh, that was Versailles into this massive palace, over 700 rooms that remains unrivaled really for its beauty and for its excess. Over 3,500 residents in that palatial estate and those residents, many of them nobility, were all there to serve him. He was known as the Sun King, for it was said that France revolves around him much like the planets revolve around the sun. His image was nearly deified in painting and sculpture, in theater and dance and in music. It's why to this day when people speak of King Louis the 14th, they just say King Louis the Great because he was universally understood to be the very definition of greatness. And listen, when you have 3,500 ready to serve you, a nation ready to deify you, right? Life can't be all that bad. But I wonder about you this morning. I wonder how you would define greatness. How would you define greatness? Would it be a walk-off home run and the extra innings of the World Series? Is that maybe how you would think of greatness? Maybe a platinum-selling album. Maybe climbing the corporate ladder and becoming a CEO. Or maybe for you, greatness would be the first in your family to go to college. You know, a New York Times best-selling author and a famous life coach who grew up not far from here defined greatness this way. He said, true greatness is fully utilizing the gifts that you've been given and actualizing and fulfilling your unique purpose. I think that's how much of the world thinks about greatness, but I wonder, is that how you would define greatness? Even more to the point, is that how Jesus would define greatness? Is that how one achieves greatness in this life? Friends, to help us think about these questions, I want to invite you to turn back with me again this morning to the, to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, we're in verses 30 through 37. So the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, 30 through 37. If you don't happen to have a Bible with you, we actually have uh, the text of the sermon. Uh, it's right there, printed in the worship guide. You can find that on page 10, I believe, page 10. And if you're visiting with us this morning, <coughs> excuse me, we drop into our text with Jesus actually nearing the end of his earthly ministry. He's, he's marching with his disciples and they're headed toward Jerusalem. And in the previous chapter, Peter has confessed Jesus as the Christ. He is the long-awaited Messiah and deliverer of God's people. And so as they make their way to Jerusalem, the disciples, well, they're filled with all these messianic hopes, messianic expectations of what it's going to be like when Jesus takes the throne and reigns as Israel's king. 
And if Jesus is the king, the 12 are thinking, you know what? We're part of his royal court. You know, we're going to be in on the action. And life for the disciples, well, in many ways, it's looking up. But what they don't yet realize, what they don't fully understand, is that Jesus' kingdom is actually not of this world. And they have no concept that the conquering Christ is first going to be a crucified Christ. Despite what Christ has sought to teach them, they've been unwilling to accept it, unwilling to hear it. And so as they make their way to Jerusalem, Jesus is again teaching them what his messiahship means for their own discipleship. What does it mean to follow him as they follow him literally to Jerusalem? And in the process, Jesus is turning their world upside down. All that they cherish, all they hold dear, all of their notions about the world, all the assumptions they have about the Messiah, he's flipping all of them on their head. They think they're destined for human greatness. But friends, what does Jesus have to say? We pick up Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 30. Well, they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child, put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Well, friends, so what is true greatness? For the disciples, right, notice in their discussion, it's all about rank, it's all about position. For the disciples, it's all about prominence. On the way to Jerusalem, they're arguing about which one of them will be the greatest when Jesus is inaugurated as king. Which is why Jesus is going to have to call a team meeting, right, get the 12 together, gather around, and he's going to have to upend once again every notion they have, in this case particularly about greatness. And I think Jesus' message is basically this. True greatness is a life devoted to service and not status. I think that's basically Jesus' message. True greatness is a life devoted to service, not status. Whereas we tend, like the disciples, to measure greatness by all of our personal accomplishments. Jesus measures it more in our attitudes and in our efforts to serve others. 
And so I want us just to look at the text in two parts. First, the pursuit of greatness. We're going to see that in verses 30 through 34. And then the path to greatness. That's going to be verses 35 to 37. So first, the pursuit of greatness, 30 to 34. Then the path to greatness, 35 to 37. So first, let's look, the pursuit of greatness, the pursuit of greatness. And here we're going to see really contrasted how, how Jesus pursues greatness and how the disciples pursue it. Stark contrast between the two. But let's think, first Jesus, the scene opens with him, and Jesus and the disciples, what are they doing? They're passing through Galilee. And we got to remember, Galilee, I mean, that's, that's Jesus' own locale, right? He is from Nazareth of Galilee, Galilee is where it all started. Galilee is where Jesus really made it big. It's where he called his disciples. Galilee is where he performed so many of his own miracles. And yet we read this time, this time as he passing through verse 30, he did not want anyone to know for he was teaching his disciples. You know, in the first chapters of Mark, the crowds are so prominent in those chapters of the over 30 references to crowds in Mark, though nearly all of them precede this passage. So we're gonna read one more time about the crowds at the end of chapter 10 with blind Bartimaeus. And then the next time we read of the crowds, we're gonna read of the crowds as they've turned on Jesus and as they're calling for his own crucifixion. Jesus' goal, right, is we're already seeing it's not about miracles, not about amassing a sort of a great number of social media followers. No, at this point, he's very clear. He's about making disciples, and he's investing strategically, purposefully in the 12 that he's gathered around him. And he needed to obviously teach them, verse 31. He needed to teach them that the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Now, this is the second of three instances where Jesus predicts his own death in this sort of road to Jerusalem. He did it back, chapter 8, verse 31, right after Peter confessed Jesus as the Messiah. We've got this one here. And then we have a third coming up in the next chapter, in chapter 10. And so this path, this path to Galilee which had been at the center of so much excitement in Jesus' ministry, so much fanfare around his ministry, it all feels so different now. It's quiet. It's more ominous, more foreboding. This road to Jerusalem is, is now colored, right? Just think back of the last chapter. It's, it's colored by darkness. It's colored by demons, by disbelief of Peter, by, by talk of death again from Jesus. And we can feel here the mood shift. And we sense that everything is changing. And it's not to the disciples' liking. You know, these three passion predictions in Mark 8 to 10, they're all pretty similar. One of the ways that this one is distinct is, is here it says that Jesus is going to be really betrayed or handed over by the hands of men. The hands of men, we see that expression. Now back in chapter 8, 31, we read that Jesus was going to be rejected, right, by the religious establishment, by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. Sort of all together they make up sort of religious establishment of Israel. But here we read not that, but just more broadly, the hands of men. So who killed Jesus? Well, the religious leaders did. 
But so did we. So did we. The hands of men means humanity, as in all of us. Now, you may be thinking, hey, come on, listen. I wasn't there. Right? I'm not personally culpable. I didn't kill Jesus. I wasn't there shouting, crucify him with the rest of the crowds. Oh, that's true. But the question the Bible would put to you is, are you sure you would have done any differently? Would you have done any differently? You know, we love, as a new Christian, I, I did this, and still sometimes I do this. We go back to the garden, you know, Adam and Eve, and we're like, oh my word, like how stupid can they be? If I was there, I never would have eaten the apple. And how many of us think that, right? We never would have done as Adam and Eve had done. And yet, that's the very nature of pride, to assume that we would be so much better and act so much differently than the others who had gone before us. That's at the heart of pride. Well, in this, very much the same way, this, the whole world has turned against Jesus. By the end of this gospel, we're going to see that all of the nation of Israel and Gentile nations, Rome itself, well, they decried Jesus as a blasphemer, as a traitor, as an enemy of the Jewish law, and when everyone else saw him as a threat to all that was good and all that was right in the world, do you really think you would have been the one person in all of history what the disciples themselves would not do? But no, you would have stood up and said, no, wait, Jesus is innocent. He truly is the Son of God. No, we wouldn't have done that. You know, darkness hates the light. And in our own spiritual darkness, every one of us would have done like everyone else did when they were gathered there. We would have cast our ballot. We would have sealed Jesus' own fate. In our sins, we were there at the foot of the cross. We were part of that shrieking crowd full of hatred and hostility to the only holy Lamb of God. The awful irony is that the Son of Man is going to be delivered and will die at the hands of men. Right, The one who will give himself for others will die at the hand of others. Those very same people. And until you see yourself standing there, shouting with rage, seething with fury at this Jesus, you will never truly see the depth of your own sin and the necessity of Jesus' own sacrifice. And yet while we legitimately kill Jesus, part of what Mark wants us to see is that Jesus' death, well, that nonetheless wasn't outside of God's own plans and purposes. So that word delivered, it's actually translated here in the ESV in most translations, it's translated as, as a future, like is going to be delivered because he is going to be delivered. But actually in the Greek, it's just in the present, is delivered. As in he is now delivered, as in his fate is already sealed. It's already been decided. You know, that same verb, delivered, is actually used in Isaiah 53, 6. So the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, uses this very same word. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. 
we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has delivered him over for the iniquity of us all. So who has delivered him over? Well, we did, right? But, but the Lord did, right? The Lord has delivered him over. Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up, same word, delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You know, the Gospel of Mark was written primarily with Gentiles, right? Non-Jews in view. And part of Mark's purpose here is to help us see that humanity's rebellion was never outside of God's intention. God is big enough and grand enough and sovereign enough and glorious enough where he can take the foolishness of men and make it the wisdom of God. He's that kind of a God. Jesus' death, while a tragedy in one sense, was not finally a catastrophe. It was part of his bigger plan. It's what we read in Acts 4, 27 to 28. We read there, for truly this city, in this city referring to Jerusalem, were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, Gentile leader, Pontius Pilate, you got your Jewish leader, along with the Gentiles, the rest of the world, and the peoples of Israel, the Jewish peoples. So notice you've got Gentile leaders, Jewish leaders, Jewish people, Gentile peoples. In other words, you got all humanity. And what is all humanity gathered to do but to do, quote, whatever your hand, God, and your plan had predestined to take place? Right, even here we're seeing in Jesus' own confession that the Father's in control, that he's in control. The Father's not sort of wringing his hands in desperation, unsure of what to do. No, he is even here in the driver's seat of the world, which means there is no event, there is no election, there is no virus, there's no hair on your head outside of his control. And Jesus understood this. He understood the Father's will. He knew his own death was imminent, and he didn't run from it, but rather he resolved to embrace it by humbly submitting to it. How does Jesus pursue greatness? By obeying the will of his Father. That's how he pursued greatness. But how do the disciples respond? How do they respond? Well, we read that they arrive there in verse 33 at the house of Capernaum. And that may actually be a reference to Peter's house. Because back in chapter 1, right, this is where, where Jesus gathered there in Peter's house in Capernaum. In chapter 1, it was all, after all, it was actually a base of their operations for a season of time back in chapter 1. And there in the privacy of that home, Jesus asks them, hey, you know, what were you discussing on the way? So when Jesus made that prediction, they, go, they, don't, they don't ask him anything after his prediction of his death and resurrection. They go quiet. Not because I don't think they really understood what he said, but because they really didn't want to hear any more about it. They're thinking in their own hearts, Jesus, we just wish you would stop with all this death and resurrection stuff. But though they didn't dialogue with him about it, it doesn't mean, he, doesn't mean they weren't dialoguing with one another along the way. No, they were evidently talking a lot with one another. For we read that they had argued with one another about who 
was the greatest. That's the conversation they're they're having there as Jesus is marching them toward Jerusalem. And friends, isn't that that great? Isn't it just like the disciples? Jesus marching toward his death and they're back behind him debating which one of them is the greatest. Jesus has just spoken of his own public humiliation and they're back there arguing and angling for their own personal recognition. That's the great juxtaposition between these these two passages and the way that each one of them is differently pursuing greatness. And we can perhaps picture the scene. You've got Peter, James, and John, and they're saying to the nine, well, listen, we all know it has to be one of us, right? I mean, we were up on the mountain. When you guys were all down there at the base of the mountain and all that foolishness, unable to deliver that demon from that guy, the three of us, we were up there. We were with Jesus. And then Peter will be like, hey, but honestly, guys, you know, it's, it's really got to be me, though. I mean, I am, after, one, after all, the one Jesus called the rock. I am, after all, the one Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church. Right? What other promise was given to you like that? I mean, I don't know, but maybe the conversation was going down something like this. And it would be comical, and it is somewhat comical, if it just wasn't so, also just so deplorable, so despicable what's happening. Because Jesus just talked about evidencing greatness and pursuing greatness by obeying the will of the Father. And the disciples are pursuing it by obeying the wills of their flesh. It's all they're really doing. You know, it's interesting, back in chapter 8, right before they started this journey to Jerusalem, when they were sort of packing for the trip, so to speak, Jesus warned the disciples about the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod, back in 8.15. He warned them about the yeast of pride and of unbelief. And that expression, they kept silent there in verse 34, is in fact the very same expression used of the Pharisees back in chapter three, verse four, when Jesus heals the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath and they're infuriated and they kept silent but internally seething with own pride and their own hardness of heart. Same expression used. It seems the leaven of the Pharisees has sort of leavened the whole lump. It's got to the disciples as well. They too are imbibed with with sort of the wine of pride and prestige and position. It's, it's consumed them too. You know, in Jewish culture, and not just Jewish culture, in many cultures today, greatness is measured by status. It's by status. So if you've ever seen the BBC miniseries Downton Abbey, I think one of the things that's so remarkable to us as Americans is that people actually live like that. Like with all those social distinctions, with all of that hierarchy, and it's, it's remarkable to us. But I mean, what you wore and what you wore at certain times of day, right? How people addressed you, the justice you received from the courts, the tables you were invited to, where you were to sit at that table when you were invited, all of that was determined by status, by one's rank in society, right? If you're Lord Grantham, you know the show, like you can go anywhere. If you're Daisy, you're not. You're down in the basement. Similarly, 
right? In Jewish society, there were strict social distinctions. There was a kind of hierarchy, not the aristocracy in the same way like Downton Abbey, but you had those social distinctions. You had those classes. And in Judaism, they even believed that in heaven, a lot of those distinctions persisted. So where one sat, how one entered into heaven, how they even worshiped around the throne would all be determined in the Judaism of Jesus' day by one's rank and status. Now that's hard, right? That's hard for our sort of populist-leaning, democracy-loving, class-negating consciences. We have a hard time with that. But that's how their world worked. And one doesn't just leap into another class. So we have class mobility here. You didn't have class mobility in those ages, in those days. And with Jesus, though, disciples, now they see they can actually do what they would otherwise never be able to do. They can actually leap classes. They can have real status. They got, with Jesus, their ticket to the top. And so... While Jesus' mind is consumed with his upcoming passion, their minds are what they're consumed with prestige, with position, with pride of place. Can you imagine the kind of patience it must have required with Jesus to keep walking with these 12? The kind of patience he is, after all, planning his funeral. And they're back there jockeying for their future. He's going to die for them. And all they can think about is what's next for them. He speaks of forfeiting his own life. And all they can think about is fulfilling theirs. He calls them to count the costs. They are concerned with weighing out the benefits He's saying he is as good as dead and they're debating how the kingdom is going to be divided among them. What would you do? I mean, if these were your 12, right? You'd give up, you'd start over, pick some new disciples. Again, anyone but these 12. They've gotta be like the worst 12 in Israel. Because ask yourself, I mean, who has yet to grieve with Jesus? This is his second prediction of his own passion. In some ways, it's really the third. Because remember the transfiguration, he talked about the resurrection, which had presumed his death. So Peter, James, and John have even heard this sort of three times at least. And who has sat down to grieve with Jesus? Who has shed a single tear with Jesus? Who has said, Jesus, let me just get down, let me just pray with you. No one. And after three years... And this is what he's got. You think your friend group is bad? I mean, these are the worst friends ever. But he doesn't ignore them. He doesn't give up on them. He doesn't berate them. He doesn't defriend them. But he sits down and what does he do? Yet again, he patiently teaches them. He patiently teaches them. Do you see how lovingly patient our Savior is? Do you see he's that way with you? How he's that way with you? Does he grieve your sin? Absolutely, he does. Is your sin a big deal to him? 
Yes. Do we tend to trivialize it? Yes. Does he do that? No. But will he give up on you? No. Quit is not a word Jesus has in his vocabulary. Just doesn't have it. Jesus, he calls failures. He disciples failures. He dies for failures. He rises for failures. He listens to failures. He delivers failures. And one day he will dine with failures forever. Failures are in fact Jesus's best friends. They're his best friends. Friends, that's the heart of our Savior. And there's no one like the Savior. There is no one like this Jesus, the heart of one who is so patient and so long-suffering with his people, the one who will humbly submit to the will of the Father, not give himself over to the passions of the flesh. Praise God, he does not act like his own disciples. Friend, if you've come and you don't identify yourself as a Christian, you don't know this Jesus, he is a beautiful Savior. I hope you've seen some picture of that. And the beauty of it is that you don't have to be part of some class distinction to have him as your friend. You don't have to be part of the upper echelons of society. You don't have to come from a particular race or ethnicity. No, Jesus invites all who see their need, all who recognize that before God they are sinners. They have the same kind of pride that marked the disciples. They know their offenses against God. They know they have done what they ought not to have done. And they have not done what they should have done. And they see that not just as an offense against one another, but offense against God. And for those who have seen that, Jesus says, listen, I am a loving Savior. And I died on the cross for sinners. And I rose again from the grave as proof that when I died as a substitute for sinners, God accepted the payment of my own sacrifice. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to earn it. You and repentance, which means turning from sin and turning to Jesus and trusting, giving your whole life to him, not just in a moment, but the entirety of your life and repentance and faith, you believe in him and you too can have this Jesus as your savior. This Jesus, one day you can dine with this Jesus. And that will be a party unlike any other, not because it's just in heaven, because it's with him. It's with this Jesus. And friends, that brings us to point two, the path to greatness. The path to greatness. Because we've just had this, again, this jarring juxtaposition of Jesus and his own public humiliation, which he's just spoken of, and yet the disciples and their pursuit of personal recognition. And so what happens? Verse 35, Jesus he sat down and he called the 12, verse 35. Now, Jesus didn't sit down because he needed to rest his weary piggies. That's not why he sat. He's assuming the posture of a teacher. Teachers sat. In those days, teachers would sit, everyone else would stand. This, these days, look, what are you all doing? You're sitting and I'm standing. But it was the opposite in those days. It was the opposite in those days. So you think about Mark 4, 1, when he's in the boat and the crowds gather, he sits. They're, on the, they're standing. You think of the Sermon on the Mount, right? He goes up on the mountain, he sits. They're standing, he teaches them. All right, so the disciples, they're back in classroom and classes in session, once again with Jesus. And it's then that he utters those memorable words, verse 35. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. 
Now, if the disciples were struggling to understand what he said about his passion, this would have absolutely thrown them for a loop. For in a cultural context of strict social distinctions and hierarchy, this statement is utterly countercultural. They don't have a category for it. Now, that word for servant is, is literally deacon. It means literally one who waits on tables. It means a server. Now, deacon here, Jesus is not referring to the office of deacon, right? He's just referring to, to a way of life, of service. But the ancient world found service demeaning. Service was demeaning. So Plato would say, how can a man be happy when he has to serve someone? You know, even this week, we were out uh, celebrating one of our kids' birthdays. We were out at a restaurant, and I got into a conversation with the server, nice guy. But it was interesting. The second I actually got into a conversation with him for a moment, he was quick to offer the fact that he'd actually just been offered a better job. And he was going to be moving to Dallas, and he got a consulting gig. And yes, he was starting at the bottom, but he was going to work his way to the top. And even right there, talking to a table waiter, there was a sense in which that job was kind of beneath him. It wasn't a truly dignified job, certainly not a respectable one like he just got in Dallas. And yet, in this similar account here in Mark and Luke's gospel, Jesus will add, for who is greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves, that is, serves the table? Is it not the one who reclines at table? Well, that's what they all think. But I, Jesus says, am among you as the one who serves, Luke twenty two twenty seven. 27. You see, Jesus is saying that service to others, service to others is not just a way of doing the Christian life, but it is actually the primary way in which believers imitate and fulfill the mission of Jesus. It's about service and it's about sacrifice. It's not about status and it's not about self-importance. That's what they didn't get. And here again is Jesus turning all the world's values on their head. So Jesus is saying it's all about bearing crosses and being a servant. And the disciples are thinking it's all about bearing a crown and directing servants. You know, this being election season and all, uh, I was reminded of a story, thinking about this story in the Revolutionary War. So there was, a, there was an officer and he was dressed in plain civilian clothes. And he came up upon a small unit. And he noticed there was the man on the horse and they were directing. He was directing rather some pretty tired and weary soldiers working on some fortifications. And as this officer in civilian clothes came, he sort of inquired of the man on the horse. He's like, so, so what's happening? What's going on? And he says to him in particular, why are you not helping these men? And the man on the horse, with great dignity and some offense at the question, says, because I'm a corporal. Well, the stranger then apologized. He dismounted, and that stranger proceeded to help those exhausted soldiers with their fortifications. And when the work was done, that stranger turned to the corporal on the horse, and he said, Mr. Corporal, next time you have a job like this, and not enough men to do it, go to your commander-in-chief, and I will come to help you again. 
It was General George Washington. And the corporal had no idea. Now, that's a secular example I know. And would it be in this election season that all of our politicians acted that way? But as disciples, Jesus is saying, you know what, this isn't optional. As disciples, Jesus is saying the path to greatness is discovered in a life given to service and not status. I wonder, are you, my Christian friend, are you a servant? Are you a servant? Is that how people around you would talk about you? Would that be one of the first things they say about you? Oh, he is a servant. She is a servant. Think about the workplace. A life of service does not mean that we flatten all positions and distinctions of accountability and authority, not at all. But think, how do you use your words in the workplace? Do you treat and speak to those who report up to you in the same manner that you treat and speak those whom you report to? In friendships, think about your friendships Are you in those friendships for what you get or for what you hope to give? How do you think your friends might answer that question? In marriage, you know, husbands, it's often the case that wives will outserve you in daily practical ways. Do you act like you're entitled to it? Do you act like such service is owed to you? How are you, or maybe I need to say, how will you practically serve them as Christ in Ephesians 5 commands you to serve them, even lay your life down for them? You know, siblings, think about your brothers and sisters. Are you always rushing to the car, the first to call shotgun for the best seat? Adults are laughing. Yeah, that's because we know the instinct. We just don't want to admit it on the other side. Are you the, the one who's quick to take around the breakfast table the biggest, best piece of bacon? That might be me in our house, I confess. Do you ever angle yourself to sort of get out of chores and out of other responsibilities knowing that they're going to be left to your other siblings? You know, what about you renters and homeowners? I wonder what your neighbors would say. Would they talk about you as one who's service-oriented? So, for example, when it's trash day, And you're driving out and you notice your neighbor has once again forgotten to take out their trash and recycling. Do you sit there in your heart quietly judging them for the way in which it's going to overflow the next week? Or might you actually get out and pull it out for them, recognizing maybe they had a bad night or a bad fight and they had just forgotten about it? I think one of the real challenges to all of us in this is how to do it without making such service about us. How do we do it with not making such service about us? I mean, because many of us are actually happy to serve so long as it's noticed. We're happy to serve, especially when it's rewarded. But will you do it even when it's not noticed? Will you do it when there is no earthly reward? Will the reward of your heavenly Father be enough? For Jesus is saying, if you want to follow him, the aim of your life can't be simply to climb the ladder. The aim of your life actually is to go back down the ladder and to serve others. And to make his point, Jesus enacts a parable before their very eyes. 
by grabbing a child, putting that child into his arms, and saying, verse 37, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Was this one of Peter's own children? If this was his house, maybe. But I think what's difficult for us when we read this is the cultural distance between ours and theirs. So we, we read about Jesus and the children, and we're like, oh, how sweet. You've got Jesus. And we've got the sweet picture of him. Because our age romanticizes children, almost idolizes children. You know, we set children forth as pristine examples of, of all that is innocent and all that is gentle and all that is pure in the world. That's how we think of children. And so again, we read this and like, oh, what a sweet Jesus. If he were running for office, I mean, someone would be snapping that shot. This would be out on campaign posters for all the soccer moms. But not in Jesus' day. Children had no rights, no power, no respectability, and most importantly, children had no status. Slaves had more rights and status than children did. They were the lowest rung. Children were the lowest rung on the social order. And so in Jesus' day, mothers cared for children, not fathers, and if it was not a mother, it was always a servant or a slave. So for a man, and not just any man, but a respectable, honorable rabbi in this gathering to grab a child, that was undignified. That was beneath Jesus. So they did not have sweet smiles across their faces when Jesus grabbed that child. That was more a look of horror and shock, like, what is he doing? And notice what Jesus says. He doesn't say become a child, but receive such a child. Which begs a bit of the question, what does the child represent? You know, in the immediate context, it's pretty clear the child has nothing to do with age alone. That's really not what Jesus was getting at. Because this teaching is not about age. All of this teaching is about their quest for status. And in Aramaic, which would have been the language Jesus was speaking, the word for child is the word for servant, Tabitha. In other words, the child represents the lowly and despised servants of the world, the ones others tend to reject. But they're not just any servants. Notice they're servants who come in my name, verse 37. So again, not just any servants, but those who bear Jesus' name, those who come with Jesus' own authority. In other words, this child represents Jesus' own disciples, all who would follow him. And if we actually step back and consider the broader context, it makes sense. We know we're on the right track because in Mark 10, 24, Jesus actually speaks of his disciples as children, and he's not honoring them in that. Even in the very next passage, what's going to happen next week in the next passage? The disciples are rebuked for not welcoming someone who casts out demons in Jesus' name. So in the very next verse, they're going to be guilty of the very thing that Jesus here is calling them to do. And in that sense, 
They're already foreshadowing the kind of rejection that Jesus and his followers are experiencing. Which just again goes to show how little the disciples understood and how much they're still infected, even after all this in the teaching with the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. So practically, this is a call by Jesus to receive those and to serve those who bear the name of brother or sister. My Christian friend, recognize you show your devotion to God both by your devotion to Christ and to Christ's followers. You show your devotion to God both by your devotion to Christ and to Christ's followers, which means you cannot say you love God, as we read in 1 John, and yet also don't love your brother and give of yourself to your brother and serve your brother. You can't, Jesus says, divide those two things. And yet how easy it is to divide those two things. For some of us, I sometimes wonder if following Christ is more imaginary than it is real. What I mean is, we say we love God, and yet our lives are marked, it certainly seems, by all those things that are simply convenient for us. So we read our Bibles at convenient times when we're alone. We listen to our favorite preachers, the ones who say the things that we like to hear on our own time when we want. We maybe even give to Christian causes we like from afar, from a distance. And we think that in doing all those things, we think we're actually serving God. This is what God wants from me. Or maybe we reason, you know, I, I could go to church in person. I could do that. But then I'd have to get up early. And then I'd have to deal with all of you awkward people. And then I'll run into the pastor at the back and he's going to ask me a question about how I thought the sermon was or where I've been. And then I'm going to have to make something up and it's just going to be difficult. I'm not sure I want to do that. I can get up later. I can grab some breakfast. I don't have to change. I can sit in front of my screen and I can just enjoy everything from afar. Wouldn't that be so much more convenient? But friends, whatever it is, how does that life, either one of those lives, how does that model the kind of life that Jesus holds out of what it means to a servant of all and to be last of all for others. I think it's one of the reasons why so many of us like to keep the church at arm's length because it is hard to be accountable to people. It's hard to be responsible for people. It's hard to be responsible for our own families, let alone a church family, and it's hard to love really unlovely people. And there are a lot of unlovely people at times in every church. And yet that's exactly what we're called to do. And honestly, that is why church membership, why committing to a body of believers is so important. Because when we commit to a church and when we covenant with others, what we are fundamentally saying is I'm here for you. I'm not here for me. I'm not here for what I get out of this. I'm here for you. I'm not here to maximize my own spiritual growth but I'm actually coming in the hopes of helping to maximize yours. And you may not think you like you have much to offer, but you'd be shocked to realize what you may have to offer. And if that means that in this Christian life, I need to slow down a little bit 
and I need to stop and I need to open up your pack and take some of the burdens out of your pack and put them on mine and together we walk a bit slower but we both make it, guess what? That's the Christian life. That's what it looks like. And friends, in this COVID season, it is so important. You know, we're praying as elders on Wednesday night, praying through the directory and grieving about the folks who are on the fringes, the folks who seem to be drifting. And maybe they're not drifting, but sometimes it's hard to tell. You don't see them. You call. You try to text. It's difficult to discern. It's hard to get together. We feel those folks on the fringes. We know as we ourselves struggle spiritually, we know how you struggle spiritually, how you may be struggling financially, burdens and fears. And yet it's exactly at a time like this when we actually need one another. Even if we can't get together in all the ways we would have liked to, we still can do it in some ways, and that's meaningful. Is it hard work? Yep. Is it messy work? Yes. Is it often thankless work? Yes. Is it the essence of Christian work? Yeah. I think I heard Joe Evans. Amen. It's the essence of true greatness, Jesus is saying. Now, friends, this is this is hard stuff because Jesus right here, what is he doing? This expression I learned when I moved here. He gets up in our grills. This is what he's doing. He's getting up in our grills. Thank, well, because yeah, here's the, truthfully, just we like to be served. I like to be served. I hate to admit it. Honestly, sometimes I don't just like to be served. Honestly, sometimes I expect to be served. You can ask my wife. We had a conversation this week. Not a good one, but a necessary one. Friend, the life of Louis the Great, the life of Louis the Great, it sounded pretty great. A grand palace, thousands of people there to meet his own needs, world revolving around us as planets revolve around the sun. We may not need 1,000, 3,000 plus servants, but you know, hey, a few would be nice, right? That's the life we pursue, but Jesus is saying, ah, different life. He's calling us to a life of humility. In the words of C.S. Lewis, a life of humility is, humility is not when we despise ourselves, and humility is not just to think less of ourselves. Humility is, in fact, is to think of ourselves less in the service of others. And that, Jesus is saying, is the essence of true greatness, not a life devoted to status, but a life devoted to Christ and the service of others. So my friends, the question Jesus leaves you with is, will your life be a truly great life? And that's not a rhetorical question because one day you will stand before him and you will give an account for that life and he will know, will it be a great life? Let's pray. God, we pray, and we know such a life is beyond us. It takes what we do not possess. And we know yet by your spirit and because you are such a patient and long-suffering God, Lord, we know that what we cannot accomplish ourselves, you can do through us, and you do with us as we work together as a body, as a community in Christ. And we pray that that would increasingly mark us as a church, not marked by pride, by status, by self, 
by what I can get, but what I can give in the service of others. Lord, we pray that increasingly becomes us. In Jesus' name, amen.